Welcome to Q Talks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Shreya. And I'm Thomas, and we are your hosts for Q Talks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not the typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on Q Talks, we're talking to Stephen Lyle, co-founder and general partner at Oxbridge Angels, a recently founded early stage fund with a focus on deep tech and life sciences, which has 80 past Cambridge executive, MBA students and other investors as limited partners. Stephen is a global serial startup entrepreneur and investor with an investment banking background. Welcome to the show, Steve. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you for asking me. Where are we um, meeting you or, or hearing you from, rather? I am, I am within the beautiful walled garden sanctuary, otherwise known as my quarantine of uh, Emmanuel College, Cambridge University. I am stranded here because all the flights back to the United States uh, have been canceled. So um, it's not the worst quarantine, I can tell you that for sure. <laughs> and maybe you can start by giving us an overview of your background. Well, sure. Um, well, for the last 20 years, um, I uh, have been a media, media technologist. I've launched uh, four companies, um, uh, all of them on a global scale, and um, launching my most recent one with Oxbridge Angels and Oxbridge Capital Partners um, and uh, a primetime Emmy Award winner. In the media technology category space, my company in sequence, which was my first startup uh, it, that I started in 2000 with a group of uh, technologists and media technologists out of Intel Corporation. And prior to that, I was a banker slash investment banker for uh, roughly 10 years, and I specialized in media media technology, uh, and I was active in wealth management as well. And uh, that's kind of the that's the cliff notes on me. What's the story behind that new venture of yours? <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, well, it, it was. It, it, I would like to say that it was my idea, but it, it really wasn't. Um, you know, I, I'm a guy that returned to academia after years uh, of you know uh, just working, uh, you know, as a as a as a professional business professional. Um, and I started that journey with getting an executive MBA. It was kind of like blowing the dust off, right, <laughs> to see if I could do this uh, with the long-term objective of uh, 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 getting a PhD in engineering, which that's how I know you, Tomas, um, at the Institute for Manufacturing. Uh, but during that journey, uh, a few academics uh, out of the business school had talked to me about, you know, while I'm here, perhaps I should look at uh, trying to um, see uh, or, or you know, determine ways that uh, I can have an impact um, on the local venture capital ecosystem, or I should say more entrepreneurial um, early stage ecosystem here in Cambridge. I did study corporate finance, private equity at Oxford University as well. So I was very interested in both of those both of those ecosystems to include London, which we now know is, you know, we call it the, you know, the golden triangle. And that began the journey of what became Oxbridge Angels and ultimately Oxbridge Capital Partners. And uh, we did had our big launch party in February 
uh, to great fanfare and wonderful jazz and uh, in the foyer of Judge Business School. We, 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 although we're not affiliated officially with the, with the university or the business school, we were born uh, out of Judge business, business School. And I would say that we are the most pure expression of that experience. And what sectors does your fund focus on? How people categorize uh, their sectors varies, you know, from one fund to another. I like to think of our fund as tech, biomed, um, deep tech, and then science. And then you could subcategorize that. Okay, so biomed would be like both biotech and medtech. Um you know, deep tech, neural networks, and any kind of uh, businesses that they, you know, industrial or business applications uh, to include data science. We're interested in all of that. Life sciences, of course. Internet of Things, uh, you know, my last company is an IoT company, perfect company. I don't, I'm not sure that I think about that as a sector anymore. It's, it's really more of a way to, um, it's more like the enterprising of everything. Anytime you connect, you know, BLE technology uh, to a piece of hardware that was uh, heretofore dumb, um, and it's sending up uh, real-time, you know, data insights, that's become an enterprise platform, and that's what IoT does. So I think of IoT as something that can could, that could span all of those uh, sectors. But then, you know, and under tech, you know, there's agri-tech, there's green tech, um, there's there's software development uh, there's apps there's, it's so and all of that's all of that's out of uh, Cambridge and Oxford it's coming out of this ecosystem so we want to be relevant where the tech tra- transfer is relevant so I, I, I'm not going to start uh, for instance um, I, I, we're, we're probably not going to invest in a microbrewery business uh, because I don't think anybody in Cambridge is really doing that as associated with the university although there's a lot of great beer here don't get me wrong <laughs> okay great so within within that uh, broad sphere of tech as you've as you've nicely described how do you, how do you differentiate yourself from other funds who are also operating maybe in in subsets of that tech sector um, what makes oxbridge angels stand out oh that's a great question well first of all uh, i want to say that i don't think it's necessary to differentiate yourself from another fund so much so. And the reason why is when you when you begin to understand a mature uh, venture ecosystem, you, you begin to understand that uh, we uh, can only succeed by syndicating and collaborating with each other and de-risking off each other. It, think of it as an expanded brain trust. But then from a, from a, from a term sheet standpoint, um, it's important for some of the established players like Cambridge Angels, which is, you know, wonderful. I mean, all of us are standing on their shoulders. You know, they, they, uh, they've done uh, a great work here in Cambridge and their legacy is before all of us. But, but they also need to de-risk by syndicating and uh, being able to go out to the marketplace and see if the marketplace will affirm their term sheet, you know, the valuation for the startup or the due diligence that they've done. And so we don't necessarily need to differentiate. We just need to be able to show up with the right people, the right skill sets, uh, the relevant skill sets, and capital to invest. Now, so I just said that we don't need to do that, but now let me answer your question to how we do that, okay? (laughs) Because I don't think it's necessarily an important thing. I I would say, um, you know, I began a journey inspired by some academic friends to do this. 
I was not at all interested in doing an angel fund or anything like that. I just saw it as problematic, time-consuming, high maintenance, and you have to deal with a lot of people, a lot of talented and gifted people, which all have big personalities, and sometimes, you know, sometimes they have big egos. And that's pretty much all of us, okay? <laughs> uh, anybody, anybody who's uh, had a lot of talent that falls into that category one degree or another. So that's a real challenge to try to orchestrate those folks. It, it's worse than hurting cats. It's hurting cats with with PhDs, you know, that's, oh my God, that's a hard thing to do. And they have to be happy. <laughs> and so uh, it, 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 that's a challenge. So what I saw what was missing in Cambridge and in Oxford was I saw a big human resource gap. Um, one of the, I saw high morbidity uh, in the early stages w uh, of startup. Um, they, you know, a startup might get through a prototype, but they, they wouldn't be able to get to the next milestone. They couldn't run successful trials or they were they were incapable of doing it or they did did it successfully, but they couldn't productize it. They couldn't they couldn't they couldn't generate a six, successful product or if they were successful, then they couldn't they couldn't uh, scale the company. They didn't have the right people uh, and people was missing. And. Uh, it, it's just happens. If you're a successful angel fund or venture capital fund, you are very limited in your ability to deploy specialized talent um, out of your staff to help curate and de-risk these early stage opportunities with, with people that can help them get to these milestones. So I thought for the, the one thing I thought uh, I wanted to do was put together a team of great people. And when and great people, I, I I mean holistically, they had, they they were highly skilled, they were specialized, but they were they were they were folks with good souls, and 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 uh, they had, they were it was a founder friendly, you know culture, and that was something was I, I saw we needed more of. And don't get me wrong, it's not casting dispersions on anybody. And I go back to Cambridge Angels. I think they really care about their founders and do an awful lot to help them and all of that. So it's not that. It's just it's just bandwidth, human resource bandwidth. I think the people issue is what's most important. Human capital uh, meets financial capital, and deploying that in a way uh, that is that is really personal. It's very much felt from the PowerPoint stage all the way through to exit. And uh, if, if you're a founder and you're in this town or you know of founders that have sat down with me or any of our group, I can promise you, even if they don't get financing, they'll, they, will, they should always say, that was the finest group of people of the finest group of people we've ever met. They were so kind and so helpful and they're continuing to help us even though uh, we haven't gotten any financing from them, or we took our financing from some, somebody else, but they've helped us for free, uh, and that's that's what we're about. I, I take your point. It's 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 very important to be founder friendly, um, and I take your point that um, there can be more than one one uh, venture fund, but but maybe so we just understand the the setup of Oxbridge Angels. Um, so it's it's a VC fund in which uh, other investors have invested, correct? Yes. It's, so it's it's two things. It's a co-branded uh, early, early stage angel fund uh, with a later stage scale up VC. And the, but the angel fund is what was launched um, uh, in February uh, for all those that were at our launch party. And so we're made up of roughly 60 angels uh, that uh, are 
it, it started out of an executive MBA program, the 2016 cohort. Rashid Zubri, my co-founder, uh, you know, he had recently retired as global head at Deutsche Bank of Sovereign Wealth and Family Office. So, so you know, Rashid and I would be very busy on the VC side raising the larger capital, but also as as uh, the GP and the managers of the angel fund. So it's not like an investment club; it's actually a very ordered process. And then we, and then from those ranks, uh, Yazreen Ibnaya, who uh, is a rocket scientist out of Imarsat, um, she chairs the investment committee uh, for Oxford Angels, which is made up of roughly twenty people, as a subset of that of that of, of Oxford Angels. And now what they're doing is they're ro- road showing out to other executive MBA programs and cohorts, not just at Cambridge, but at Oxford and some of the other elite schools to, to now create a distributed network of highly specialized cross-sector skill sets uh, that are also investors. Uh, and so uh, I hope that clarifies the structure, uh, wh- how we look. And we, are, we look very different than anybody, that is for sure. So you mentioned the um, angel fund as well as the later stage VC fund. Does this tie in to how you help founders bridge the so-called valley of death? And maybe you can talk a little bit about about that valley of death. Ah, uh, I shall. Yes. Um, so we, so Rashid and I, Rashid Zubri and I, we spent um, uh, we spent really a whole year researching before we decided to go do something, and. Uh, uh, of course, the first thing we discovered that, you know, the Valley of Death, it exists in the States, okay? It exists everywhere. But the Valley of Death here, it's it's a bigger valley. <laughs> There's a dearth of players that want to, want to invest in a round. I describe the marketplace in the United Kingdom as very barbelled. Uh, there's, there's no shortage of early stage angel capital. And there's no sh- shortage of you know, B, B round plus later stage VC capital that that's all ready to jump in, you know, and to and jump into the pond once, you know, the company's completely de-risk and it has three to five years trailing EBITDA, right? Well, what about the A round? Okay, so that excited me. And the reason why is because I've, I've had to raise money for my own concerns. I know how hard it is to do that. I know that space really well. That's my favorite. My favorite round is a round. And so I wanted to go I wanted to go where few others uh, aspired to go. That was my favorite place. I wanted to be there. So then the next layer of research was, well, let's go talk to the market. And so uh, I opened up my Rolodex of corporate venture capital firms with big, you know, big brand names, you know, the Googles, the Amazons, the General Motors, uh, you, you know, the Bosches of the world. Uh, and we talked to over 30 CVCs, and out of uh, out of all of the ones that we talked to, 100% of them said, "Steve, we love what you're trying to do, particularly with uh, having a co-branded angel fund. W- that helps us out. It de-risks for us. We are missing this human resource capital, and uh, we love what you're doing. And if you start this." we would love to partner with you in some capacity, either as a syndicated partner or as a direct investor and LP is what we call them in the VC world, a limited partner investor in your general fund. Uh, And so when you, when you, when you get that ordered and organized, please come back to us. And so we made lists. We had long conversations with every one of them. 
Okay. And so just for my understanding, by having this co-branded VC fund, it basically enables the founders that you invest in at the early stage to bridge that valley of death in a more um, kind of supported way rather than having to do it off of their own back. Right. And that's only one of the differentiating value propositions of Oxbridge Angels and Oxbridge Capital Partners. Oxbridge Angels gives us gives you the people, right? Uh, these folks want to help you. They're going to be they're going to proact you and surround you. Um, and the second part of it is uh, we want to be doing follow ons out of our own investments or help, helping the existing marketplace. Uh, if it's Cambridge Angels or it's Amadeus, uh, uh, you know, or um, uh, or IC Capital, all those folks, we want we we want to help them. Excuse me, IQ Capital. We want to help them syndicate their rounds. We want to be there for a round. So we don't care whether we lead or not. We're fine to have IQ Capital lead, and we'll just syndicate with them. What's happened, Shreya, in the marketplace here, isn't as simple as saying that nobody wants to do an a round. It's that there's a lack of syndicated players. And when you do an A round, if you're going to lead an A round, you need to find two or three other investors to help you close it. If you can't, you don't get to close that round. That's what's happened. That's what's missing here. So yeah, we want to help, we want to help the founders bridge the valley of death, but we also want to help them get through the milestones so they can have an opportunity to go ask for an A round, you know, order. You've got quite a lot of experience yourself as an entrepreneur, as well as as an investor. So I thought it might be interesting for the listeners to learn a bit more about what you've learned as an entrepreneur. Um, so ha- having seen it from both sides, what um, what have you learned about how to approach investors successfully for funding? Um, and what, what can, t- kind of tips can you give to founders that might be listening to this? Well, um, I think you need to, first of all, understand the realities, right? That you're more likely to fail than succeed. You just have to live with that. Uh, if you look at a venture capital portfolio, let's take like 100 companies. It's not a normal distribution. It's not a sweet little bell curve that's, you know, it's got all the symmetry for you, you're right? You know, the means right in the middle. It's a power law bell curve, okay? And if you want a visual, um, it starts off high up on the x-axis, and it's a near vertical drop before you get to one, all the way down to the x-axis, where it moves along the x-axis eternally, asymptotic to, to the x-axis. And in real numbers, what does that mean? Out of 100 investments, 62 are going to go to zero. All right, and ten more are are, are going to get less than one. All right, so now we're at seventy two percent. Another another ten will get less than two. So somewhere between one and two, we're at eighty two percent. Eighty two, you know, maybe uh, have got have not gotten anything back or some of their money back, but sixty two of them zero. All right, the rest of them is what the the, the eighteen left. That's what carries these VC portfolios to 30 percentage point plus IRRs, you know, 3X you know, ROIs. All right. So you're just one of those dots. And statistically, actuarially speaking, you're one of the dots that's in the 62. Okay. Remember the power law distribution curve. Remember that. 
And if you're going to go into this, you need to remember that. I didn't have those kinds of understandings. I mean, I knew it. I was a banker, but I, I just thought I could do anything. I just, there was a sense of, you know, I left, I left in 2000 to start my first company with Intel. I was asked to leave. I, I didn't need to work the rest of my life. I had a, you know, a massive portfolio. It was awesome. <laughs> and I, I, I wish I could have that day back because I, it, if for all, for all the successes, you, you know, there's more failures and sorrows and it was so hard. It's not worth the money. And, um, if I could go back, I probably wouldn't do what I did. I would, I would have stayed at the bank. Uh, it was, uh, it was a great place to be. And, um, I was really successful there. And, uh, ever since I left, you know, I, 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 I would, I would say I would define myself at, not as a serial entrepreneur, but as a serial failure. And, Somewhere in the failings, there were some successes that really mattered. And I think that's a, a, a well, that's a very timely reminder for sure. Uh, what would be your recommendation, Steve, for an entrepreneur who is aware of the odds against him or her? So what's what's the takeaway lesson? I mean, should he do it or not? He or she uh, should just consider... Um, the mountain that you have to climb, I always tell people, uh, make sure that you're mentally, spiritually healthy and, and you're in a healthy relationship. If, if you're not, uh, you're, it's going to be challenged anyways. Your mental health will be challenged by this. This will be so difficult. It will be the worst thing. It, it's, it's difficult. So have your house in order, have your personal life in order, and realize that you're doing something that is going to be awesome. Uh, surround yourself with great people. Um, the people are the most important um, ish, the, the most important ingredient in all human endeavors. Every human endeavor, it's the human resource, the human capital. That's the most important part of the equation. So be very careful who you call, call your co-founders. Is that your top criteria as an investor when you're then looking at founders? Because from a founder's perspective, obviously, you've said that it's incredibly difficult, but there have to be some successes because it's a two-way stream in terms of finding investment and some startups do succeed. So would you say that that is um, your top criteria or what else do you look for in founders that they might be able to harness and um, make work for them? I, I think it's a great question. Uh Yes, the people are most important. If um, we uh, if we if we see a, a group of founders and we interview them, and um, and sometimes there's like you know the proto founder, you know the founder, the person, and then there's some co-founders around that person. I really look at that that person, and uh, you know my I, I want to get a sense that are they teachable, are they agile, how do they adapt to change. I'm always looking for your ability to adapt to change. That is my number one. My number one focus is I want to understand as quickly as, as possible. If I'm going to invest in Shreya and her company, I'm trying to get the quickest sense that I can, the best sense that I can, your ability to adapt to change because change is coming your way. This isn't going to work out the way that you think it is. It's going to be different. And how do you feel about that? How do you react to that? How do you react to changing roles and responsibilities and changing the marketplace uh, occasionally a pandemic comes comes your way it, these because it, it it demonstrates your ability to pivot 
it, it, you know, it, it demonstrates all those things. It's very, very important. Then after that, of course, what kind of mousetrap have you invented? Is it, is, is it, is it nuanced in a very special way? Is there something unique about it? Is it a, is it, is it a, 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 a disruptive innovation? Is it a sustaining innovation? We would invest in both of those types of innovations. What is unique about it? What, what problem is so bad and your cure is so good that nobody else has thought of it, right? That's great. Does it scale? Is the market opportunity big, you know? Um, is there a clean and crisp and coherent business model? Those are all really important elements. So it's like an eight-layered cake, but it starts off with the people. The people are the most important thing. So I'm really glad that you asked that question. I, as you, as you were talking, I was sort of imagining myself as a founder, as if I've got this great technology that, um, that I believe can make into a company. I've got a co-founder on board who's in, as enthusiastic as me about it. Um, what would you say is the most important thing? And this might be a, a difficult question, but what would you say is the most important thing that the founders should be focusing on at this early stage? Very great question. And I'm glad that you asked it because it's one that I want to lean in on as often as I, as I can. Uh, so let's say that we have uh, a singular a single founder or two co-founders and then we have a, you know after that kind of like employees one through ten and and some of them might be called co-founders okay um, I, I see this all the time I, it, I I've been in the lifeboat with other co-founders everybody splits up the you know the cap table pie okay well you get 20 percent you get 20 percent you get 20 it, it, everything's even steven right but then you find after you leave port that not all the founders are created equally they don't they they don't deliver and then you have to walk a founder to the door and but now they have 20 percent stock in the company uh that's that's a real problem. So an investor, my standpoint, I'm going to come in and I'm going to see, oh, we got a real issue here. I'm going to have to recap the company and fix that, right? And I had the power to do it because, you know, you get zero or you can have, you know, this, this term sheet I'm going to give you that's going to make your company better. Uh, so I tell founders, know your roles, lock that stuff down. And I think people should be on vesting schedules. If you're not like the founder or one of the two co-founders or the three co-founders, um, I think people should be on a vesting schedule. And for those listeners that might not understand what you mean, can you just quickly explain that? Ah, so it's so uh, if you get a job at, um, let's say uh, you get a job at Amazon, and uh, they say, "Hey, welcome to Amazon. Uh, here's your here's your employee packet. Here's your salary. You get stock, but here's the deal. Um, we're going to give you uh, we're going to give you ten thousand uh, we're going to give you 10,000 options on common stock. Um, and uh, in the first year, if you leave in the first year, you get zero. But at, at the end of the first year, you'll, you'll vest 20%. And then you'll vest 20% a year over the next four years. And at the end of that time period, in about five years now, you'll have 100% vesting in your stock. And so uh, that just means like if something happens, um, you don't work out. You both parties can leave, and the and the shareholders, the, the investors, and the shareholders, and the original founders aren't held hostage in the whole process. And I, I believe this is also a fairly standard procedure for most funds, isn't it? Well, it is, but more. But what's more in practice, um, 
uh, most startups they they just it's the it's like the the buddy system, right? We we'd split the pizza up evenly between us all. Well, it's all great when things are great, but when things aren't so great, it gets kind of it you know, and that's the part that's going to surprise you about startup. You're not all founders are going to get along forever. So these are quite difficult conversations for founders to have, especially with the first 10 employees who they desperately want to have on their company and they will do whatever they can to get them on board. So how how can founders kind of navigate that? Well, okay. Remember, there's it, it, it's different if you and a friend are the founders and then you have employees one through 10, you know, or, or three through 10, whatever it is. Everybody has to be on a vesting schedule. You're doing them and yourself a favor. It has to be that way. Okay. It just has to be that way. It, it, nobody should get something for just showing up. Understood. And maybe to wrap up, uh, a fun question at the end. What, what are the top three books that you recommend to all founders? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So... I, can I talk about three types of books? And I'll just I'll I'll, I'll give this a, I'll give you a crisp answer. I do think that everybody I think everybody should be reading Peter Peter Thiel right now or Peter Thiel, excuse me, zero to one because he talks about everything that you need to know in starting a company and what the future should look like, I, I, and it's very level setting. Uh, so Peter Thiel's right at the top of the list, and you know, of course Peter Thiel is, is the co-founder of, of PayPal. Um, and you know, he, and Palantir, uh, and Y Combinator, uh, wonderful guy. I think everybody should read the lean startup. In fact, if you, if you don't have time to read it, get the book and breeze through the sections and adopt a lot of those mind, that mindset. Uh, Eric Reese, uh, is the author there. You know, uh, when it comes to books and beer, I like to consume locally. And I got to tell you, JD, JD probably who, who uh, is over at Judge Business School. He's a co-author of uh, Frugal Innovation, How to Do More with Less. I think uh, he's a worthy read. Uh, Mark Durand, who I think is uh, one of the thought leaders of the entire university, uh, he wrote a book, There is an I in Team. He's a PhD ethnographer out of Oxford. He's at, he's at, uh, he's at Judge Business School. Oh, by the way, he's one of my PhD supervisors. <laughs> but, Mark, Mark, but, but that's about how to get people to row together in the boat. And also the import of a person, a single person on a team, and how that person can bring everybody's skill set up. Then the, the other book I think you should read is you should understand everybody that's doing that's in startups should understand what the money thinks. That will help you get the book Angel Investing by David Gold. That's a great read. It'll also help you understand term sheets. And uh, by the way, you'll if you read that book, you'll understand some of the playbook of Oxbridge Angels. So. Of the types of books, that's industry related, but I don't think you should just read, read industry. I think you should read about um, – I just finished The Philosophical Breakfast Club uh, by Laura Snyder. Uh, it's about collaborative um, disruption um, for some of the greatest scientists, Charles Babbage, John Herschel, William Houle, Richard Jones out of Cambridge. In fact, they invented the word scientist at the Senate Hall. Here at Cambridge. Before that, they were called natural philosophers. Get that book and read it. It has a lot of implication for startups. On the fiction side, um, you know, please read fiction. Learn how to tell your story. You know, I, I am a Hollywood guy. I have worked on creative development teams and writing teams. And I have to tell you, 
9.9 out of 10 startup founders don't know how to tell, be storytellers. Um, I'm right now, I'm reading Lord of the Rings. I've returned to Lord of the Rings by J.R. Tolkien. And so that's my three books in a nutshell. <laughs> well, thank, thanks so much, Steve, for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks very much to Steve for joining us. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we would also like to say a big thanks to the team at QTech, who've all been working very hard behind the scenes. Thank you very much for listening. And please do go ahead and rate us or leave a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme, or tell us your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks.